The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. A thorough exam in someone who you think is short of breath from heart failure, if they don't have B-lines, they're not short of breath from pulmonary edema um, from a clinical standpoint. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call focuses on POCUS, point-of-care ultrasound. The article is from April 27, 2021, titled Appropriate Use of -of Point-of-Care Ultrasonography in Patients with Acute Dyspnea in Emergency Department or Inpatient Settings, a clinical guideline from the American College of Physicians. Joining me on this is Dr. David Turney, who's an internist at Abbott Northwestern Hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he's the Internal Medicine Program Director and works as a hospitalist and a proceduralist. He founded and now directs the Internal Medicine Bedside Ultrasound Program there and has trained over 250 physicians since 2020. He also is the director for the ACP POCUS Fundamentals course with Dr. Noel Northcutt and the co-director of the ACP POCUS Mentorship Program with Dr. Mike Wagner. We hope that you learn a lot from this podcast. Well, David, thank you so much for uh, joining us for this podcast. Just as an introduction, one of the challenges that we face both as general internists and as hospitalists is how to work up dyspnea. And acute dyspnea is particularly concerning for those of us who mostly do hospital medicine. Getting the correct diagnosis is everything. Over the past couple of years, I've seen many more of our residents in our program embrace POCUS as part of their physical exam for acute dyspnea. I remember a recent morning report where we had a patient with dyspnea and the residents were asking the resident who was presenting whether or not they'd done POCUS because they, it was going to help them on the differential diagnosis. So let's start out first by defining what POCUS is for the listeners who are not sure what we're talking about. And then we're going to focus on the new guideline from the American College of Physicians on how well it helps us with possible community-acquired pneumonia, pneumothorax, pulmonary embolism, and pulmonary edema. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about POCUS. Yeah, so POCUS, just from an acronym standpoint, is point-of-care ultrasound. And point-of-care ultrasound from a definition standpoint then really is about the modality, so ultrasound in the hands of someone who's at the bedside taking care of patients, a clinician. Um, what that ultrasound looks like doesn't matter. It can be big, it can be small, it can be fancy, it can be simple, but it's that modality of ultrasound uh, being used by a clinician at the bedside. And what it requires then is a handful of skills. It's the ability to get images. So the acquisition aspect of ultrasound, 
It involves that same person at the bedside being able to interpret what they're seeing on the screen in real time. And then probably most importantly, it involves that clinician who's taking care of the patient who's got all sorts of different tests and has a history and has a pretest probability of something to say, all right, let me take my interpretation of what I'm seeing on the screen and actually integrate it into all of that other stuff uh, to come up with a post-test probability, right, of some diagnosis. So that's a long sentence, but that's point of care ultrasound. Um, It's a tool in the hands of someone, but it's more than just the tool of ultrasound. So as someone who teaches POCUS both at a local and at a national level, who's our target audience? Who needs to learn point of care ultrasound? So from an internal medicine specific standpoint, we teach just as many outpatient doctors as we do inpatient doctors. So this is not a inpatient only, acute patient only skill set. So it spans those two aspects of internal medicine. There's not an exception for who shouldn't um, be using point of care ultrasound from my standpoint, at least if you've got the tools and you've got the ability to learn to a high enough level that your test characteristics using it are helpful and not harmful, then there's really not a niche within internal medicine where I don't think this is helpful. Great. The American College Physicians looked at the data for the four potential causes of acute dyspnea that we mentioned. I think it's worthwhile to mention the exclusions in their analysis. They excluded patients with COPD or asthma or acute coronary disease or trauma. They don't say, but I suspect they may have also restricted restrictive lung disease because if you're going to restrict uh, COPD, you probably would restrict restrictive disease, but they don't say that particularly in the guideline. So let's go through each of those four and you can tell us how you use and teach POCUS, what you're looking for, and do you have any concerns about integrating that in? And I love the way you describe POCUS as another tool in your toolbox, in addition to history, the physical exam, the lab tests, and POCUS just adds to the overall uh, illness script, so to speak, of uh, the particular diagnosis. So let's start with pulmonary edema. When pulmonary edema is in your differential, what do you find on POCUS? How good is it? And how does that help you? And, and, And if you have any good clinical examples, that'd be great. Yeah. So pulmonary edema is, I mean, when people say what, what are the biggest niches for lung ultrasound or point of care ultrasound and short of breath patients, it's really people focus on the heart failure patient, right? And if we, at least for clarity's sake, describe pulmonary edema here as cardiogenic hydrostatic pulmonary edema, right? From a heart failure standpoint, one of the biggest benefits of point of care ultrasound is its sensitivity for interstitial processes. And if pulmonary edema, as we described it, is an interstitial process, ultrasound almost always picks it up when it's there. And if it's there enough to make someone come in and say, I'm short of breath, maybe even be hypoxic, it's almost always present. So the chance that you're going to not have beelines, which is the ultrasound finding for an interstitial process, pulmonary edema in someone who is short of breath from heart failure and pulmonary edema is almost impossible. And the almost impossible piece just has to do with how thorough your exam is. Almost all of these test characteristics we're talking about have to do with how much of the lung did you survey? A CT scan does a great job because it surveys the whole thing, right? Um, And if you just put a probe in two spots on the chest, 
your sensitivity, right, is far different than if you spend 15 minutes going all over the chest. So all of these things have that caveat to it, but um, a thorough exam in someone who you think is short of breath from heart failure, if they don't have beelines, they're not short of breath from pulmonary edema from a clinical standpoint. And beelines, if I remember right, those, those are horizontal lines, just like we call them beelines on chest x-ray also, don't we? Yeah. So they're akin to curly beelines on a chest x-ray. Um, they're the vertical laser-like Vertical lines. Okay. They originate at the pleural line at the top of the screen and they shoot down to the bottom. They are, they're converses, A lines, which go across, A for across the screen, um, which is representative of air. So. Okay. So they have vertical lines and in that evaluation, and I don't remember whether the uh, guideline includes this or not, but I know that many of the residents will look at the left ventricle and get a sense whether it's hypokinetic or not. So if it's a patient that you don't know has heart disease and comes in dyspneic, I would assume that also adds to your overall information and thinking about the course of where you're going to go further diagnostically and uh, with treatment. For sure. I mean, anyone who thinks that lung ultrasound by itself gets the job done for shortness of breath is missing important pieces, right? There's, and that's maybe my reason for clarifying pulmonary edema at the beginning, right? There's other reasons. There's inflammatory interstitial processes, and there's other reasons for pulmonary edema. So to be more than just, this is an interstitial process, you've got to integrate volume status, filling pressures, heart function, um, et cetera. So this always takes into account those other things, assessment of right atrial pressure and assessment of LV systolic function. And then, yeah, we just can't forget diastolic function in there as well. Great. So pulmonary edema, it sounds like if you're in doubt, this, this really helps you a lot. It's relatively sensitive and relatively specific. Yeah. And I'll maybe just chime in here. The, the piece about excluding COPD, right? If you were going to say, what's the most valuable patient you use this in, Dave? Um, it's the patient who comes in and they've got a history of HFPEF or HFREF as well as COPD, right? And they're short of breath and the patient's wife thinks it's because they ate ham last week and the patient thinks it's because he ran out of his inhalers, right? And we treat them both. And beelines help you there, but actually the absence of beelines because of what we said about its sensitivity, right? The absence of beelines is actually maybe the most helpful part of this um, to say, you know what? This isn't your heart failure. This is your COPD and we don't need to give you 40 of IV Lasix. That's gonna make your kidneys unhappy tomorrow. And I love that because they specifically did not include that in the guideline, but your clinical experience tells you, and my clinical experience tells me that the COPD heart failure patient who comes in short of breath, that's our big mystery. That's what we worry about all the time. Right. Uh, So that's really useful. The, The second thing that they did a guideline on was pleural effusion. And that one sort of surprised me because I, I can often just diagnose that with, with my fingers percussing, but it seems like there are more subtle pleural effusions that I might miss and some other things. So talk about pleural effusion and when POPIS really helps us. Yeah. So I think your statement about percussion usually being able to find, right, is about the sensitivity of percussion for pleural effusion, which is quite good, right? The specificity of percussion or pleural effusion lack somewhat, mm-hmm. um, especially in the hospitalized patient. You've got someone who's post-op from a CV surgical operation and has an elevated hemidiaphragm, right? Or has a mucus plug and some atelectasis and has an elevated hemidiaphragm where we get 
percussive dullness, but they don't actually have a significant effusion. And for many years, those are the ones we tapped or put a needle into and we didn't get much, if anything, out of uh, from a procedural standpoint. So I think the the big benefit of ultrasound and pleural effusion is two. It's um, when the chest x-ray says there's a good size pleural effusion um, and you don't know whether it's 80% atelectasis and 20% fluid or 20% atelectasis and actually a meaningful amount of fluid in there. Um, it really helps with that, that clinical scenario. It also helps. There's a lot of patients we go up to and look at on the uh, procedure team here where people think they've got big effusions. And yes, they have a little effusion there. It's not that they don't have effusions when the chest x-ray says it does. It's just not a meaningful effusion if your goal is to try to make this patient breathe better or come off their oxygen. So it's about how big actually is it? Is it meaningful to drain? And then the last piece is our physical exam does very little, actually nothing from the standpoint of, is this a complex or a simple pleural effusion? Um, CT does a decent job of that. Not a great job, but chest x-ray often fails there. So yeah, it's really helpful to be able to see lots and lots of loculations or a few loculations. Um, and one, know what to do with that. But two, also it sometimes changes your mind about whether you should go get that fluid. Um, you've got someone who's got heart failure clinically and has a pleural effusion that's been resistant to diuresis. And when you look at it with ultrasound, you notice a good amount of inflammatory loculation in there. It's not a simple effusion and it's maybe been treated just as a heart failure effusion for a while. And that visualization on the ultrasound changes your mind about whether someone should go get a sample of that, whether it's malignancy, right? Or et cetera. So those are the two big benefits of quantifying the actual volume of fluid not hitting elevated hemidiaphragms um, and getting a sense of the characteristic of the pleural effusion, which doesn't always surprise you, but every once in a while it does. I guess we should throw in that if you're going to plan to do your own thoracentesis, it's extremely valuable to know exactly where to go. 100%. I, I mean, I think there's very few people today who do thoracentesis blind anymore. That's how I trained 20 years ago, but um, I don't doing blind. I think most people don't do blind thoracentesis anymore when ultrasound's available. Now we come to uh, actually one of my favorite topics, which is community-acquired pneumonia, because I've said this many places that an admission with a label of community-acquired pneumonia is the beginning of a great thought process, because a lot of labels of community-acquired pneumonia are not. How good is focus for helping me sort out whether this shadow on the chest x-ray really is consolidation or not. Because I've seen a lot of patients admitted with something on their chest x-ray and it defaulted to pneumonia, but would I get to, to skepticism more quickly if I was doing focus? So I think let's start with a patient who has a clean lung ultrasound and comes in with a diagnosis of pneumonia, the chance of them having pneumonia still with a clean lung ultrasound, right? It looks pristine. There's no B lines. There's no mm -hmm. consolidation. The chance of that person coming in and having pneumonia is extremely small in the literature. But I think as internists, we've got to be really, really careful here. The literature by and large, as is pointed out in the ACP document, is driven by critically ill inpatients. People who were sick enough with their pneumonia to end up in a hospital. And the sensitivity of lung ultrasound for those pneumonias that are big enough and severe enough to get you landed in the ICU or in the hospital is pretty darn good. You don't miss it with ultrasound. Again, if you do a thorough exam, 
In the less sick patient, the community-acquired pneumonia who comes into clinic for an internist or those pieces, the sensitivity of lung ultrasound is not as good, period. It hasn't been studied well yet, um, but it is not as good. So it really depends on how sick is the patient. But a clean lung ultrasound and someone who you think has got pneumonia and you've got a decent amount of skepticism at the beginning is a pretty strong predictor that there's not a big pneumonia there. One of the caveats to lung ultrasound is that the thing has to get all the way out to the pleura for you to see it on lung ultrasound. Ultrasound doesn't go through air. So if you've got a central pneumonia adjacent to the mediastinum, but it doesn't get out to the pleura, you've got a buffer of air around it. You're not going to see it on lung ultrasound. So the way it clinically gets used for us at least is if you've got a clean lung ultrasound and we're still thinking you've got pneumonia, the chest x-ray really often doesn't find that either, right? It's one of these retrocardiac, et cetera, especially a single view. Um, and those people are often needing CT scan eventually to find the pneumonia if it's there. So it's one of the toughest pieces, um, I think, but that's how we approach the negative lung ultrasound in someone who's got pneumonia. The positive ultrasound in someone who you think has pneumonia, the great debate is always, is this atelectasis or is this alveolar consolidation, right? Specifically, we'll call that pneumonia. And that's the debate on the chest x-ray read, right? Could be consolidation, could be atelectasis clinical, right? Integration advised, and that's the same thing on ultrasound. With that being said, they look very similar. However, there are pieces of ultrasound that push you towards one or the other, and they're not likelihood ratios that are huge in either direction, um, but they definitely push you, and it's better than the other stuff we've got. So there's something called dynamic air bronchograms on lung ultrasound that pushes you quite a ways towards consolidation. It means the air is getting out to those little alveoli, and they're not filling up with air, and that's just not atelectasis. Um, and then there's the absence of those. That's probably our best finding that pushes us towards pneumonia when you see a parenchymal process on ultrasound. The only other piece that I think is, is useful is sort of thinking through if this was atelectasis, why would it be hanging out up here halfway up the chest versus down in that basal tip, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where physics might compress uh, the lung actually. So the distribution of where actually is this thing that you see on a two-dimensional chest x-ray in the chest uh, helps you quite a bit in saying this is something that physics could be compressing atelectasis, or this is something that is in a spot that only pneumonia could get to. So it's still gray. There's no question, but it, it's a little push. I do want to mention, and I love that you mentioned a single view chest x-ray. When I talk to my radiology colleagues, which I do quite often, they decry the single view chest x-ray portable and really urge us to get a two view because it's that lateral view that allows you to see the things that ultrasound has a hard time with. So I think when we're still unsure, sometimes we don't have to go to CT scan. Sometimes if the patient can get a good PA and lateral, you can learn a whole lot, and especially those central ones that you can't reach with ultrasound. I think it's using all of these, you know, all of these modalities uh, are synergistic in our diagnostic process. And the last one is pulmonary embolism. I actually have a case to tell you about. Uh, I had a guy come in who had uh, some heart disease. Uh, he had a little chest pain. He was doing perfectly fine. Everything was going great. We saw him on morning rounds. We examined him. Everything was good. We got called about 15 minutes later to his room because he was acutely dyspneic. He'd been to the bathroom, come back, 
He was now tachycardic. He was now hypoxic. The team rapidly did POCUS and found that he had elevated right-sided pressures, uh, and we quickly diagnosed pulmonary embolism, uh, sent him to the ICU. So pulmonary embolism in general, that's another one that we hate to miss, and we sometimes don't even think of it when we should. What's your experience, and what do the guidelines say about pulmonary embolism and POCUS as an adjunct to helping us think about that? Pulmonary embolism and pneumothorax, those two entities in general, get us close to sort of the original emergency medicine use of point of care ultrasound, right? They're usually people who are critically ill. There's a time sensitive aspect to it. And there's some treatment that turns things around if you identify it fast enough. And with both diagnoses, but we'll take pulmonary embolism here um, at the start. The When you find it, in that unstable patient and they've got a big dilated right ventricle that's hypokinetic and you look at their lungs and their lungs are otherwise clean, meaning they don't have pulmonary edema or some other reason, right? Which is a hugely impactful part of diagnosing pulmonary embolism is the lack of something else. Mm -hmm. There's not some magical finding on ultrasound that tells you this is PE, but the lack of other stuff plus a right ventricle that looks unhappy. I'm in the right clinical setting. If you want to add putting a probe on the groin and looking at the common femoral and seeing a big thrombus there at two in the morning. That's a hugely impactful life-saving in a PEA arrest patient event. And you push lytics and the game is still in play. So that's sort of the emergency medicine poster child, right? For, Mm -hmm. For this. The problem is there's a lot of things that cause RV hypokinesis, right? And dilation um, and right-sided pressure elevation. And if you've never seen someone before and they come in and they've got a dilated RV that's hypokinetic, uh, they've got COPD or sleep apnea, right? Or some Mm storyline. There's a lot of fake outs here uh, from the ultrasound side of diagnosing PE because you can't see the PE. With ultrasound, you would just see the right-sided filling issues. And that's, I think, the biggest caution um, is in the right clinical situation, when you need to make a diagnosis and go for it, it's hugely impactful, but it takes all of those cautions that come with that integration part of point of care ultrasound of saying, all right, but remember this patient has had COPD for 45 years, right? And has chronic pulmonary hypertension, right? And the findings we're seeing on the right side of the heart may be PE but also may not be. And pushing lytics is not a benign intervention. So there's some risk for us being wrong here. So let's go one step further. Okay, let's get a CTPE study before we do this, or let's talk about D-dimer or whatever of those additional adjunct tests uh, to add in. So I think what you're saying is that the sensitivity is pretty good, but the specificity is not that good. And even the sensitivity lacks. I mean- They both lack, uh, if you just say right heart strain, right, is not sensitive nor specific for pulmonary embolism. Mm-hmm. So they both lack. Uh, and it's just a, it's a tool that if you added right side to underfilled hyperdynamic left side with no other reason, right, no past mm-hmm. history, no current history, and you found a big clot in the groin, right, that would be great, right? You'd be right. pretty darn confident. But any one of those things in isolation both from a sensitivity and specificity standpoint, uh, when the impact is lytics, yes or no, uh, is questionable. And you just have to be very careful there. So let me rephrase that. I think that what the ultrasound does in an undifferentiated patients with 
acute dyspnea and you're thinking about the possibility of pulmonary embolism, certain findings increase the probability. They don't make the diagnosis, but they may push you towards a definitive test like a, a CT uh, angiogram or something like that, because this now becomes a high enough probability that you can't afford to miss it. Exactly. And if the clinical situation says we don't have time to do 95% right post-test, we're going to take 88% post-test and treat it. Great. So let's just finish up. You're the director uh, of the ACP POCUS course, and I think you do that two or three times a year. Is that right? Yeah. So both Noel Northcutt um, in Colorado and myself are directors, co-directors of this course. And we do a two-day point-of-care ultrasound course, an introductory course, twice in Chicago in November each year, back-to-back, a Thursday, Friday, and a Saturday, Sunday. And then we do a pre-course at National ACP the two days prior. And that's an introductory POCUS course for internists. Um, a lot of hands-on, and it's two days worth. And then there's also an advanced outpatient-focused point-of-care ultrasound course, which is a one-day a course that Dr. Wagner uh, teaches, which also happens at both venues. And uh, for the people listening, give them a sales pitch on what, on what they will learn and why uh, learning POCUS is all about being a good physician in the 2020s. I'll start with the second and I'll go to the first or end with the first, but it's, um, I think everyone has seen it coming, arriving in different sort of uh people and residents arriving, medical students arriving, um, you'll see it as a part of many, many residencies. And if for no other reason to understand what's happening around you as an internist, as a faculty member, knowing what this is, what the pitfalls are, right? Because this is something that makes people excited. And our biggest job as at least faculty in attendings is to understand the pitfalls because there are plenty of pitfalls around this. That's one big piece. Uh, Without question, Anecdotally and from a growing evidence standpoint, we take better care of patients. Take quicker care of patients, we get to diagnoses again, anecdotally, right, without great randomized trials, faster. We prevent some Lasix. Maybe we shorten the length of stay day by one because we don't bump their kidneys, Um, but we take better care of patients as internists. And it's not just hospitalists. We do as much, if not more, in the outpatient clinics, and we probably have a bigger impact actually in our outpatient clinics uh, from this. So those are two key tenants um, to it, I think. And it's uh, it's not a replacement of the traditional physical exam, right? We all get a little twitchy when we talk about getting rid of traditional exam, uh, but there are parts of that traditional exam that we can do better. I think if we're all honest, we understand that. And it's about adding this to physical exam and all the other test data and learning it and teaching it in a way that makes sure that's emphasized. So that's that's the why, um, I think, behind it. And the POCUS course, the pitch for it is the core stuff that you've got to know to be around people using it, to begin to use it, and to make sure that if you use it, you're not going to do harm, but rather provide some incremental benefit in the right patients is what you get out of those two days. And it's a ton of hands-on. It's amazing, amazing national instructors from across the country um, that have been doing this for a long time. And uh, you have your hand on a probe for the majority of two days, ultrasounding uh, models in those courses. So not sit and listen to Dave. It's a lot of hands-on work. Well, let me just add that one of the things that I admire most about people who do POCUS is they spend more time at the bedside. And I think that's something that really is valuable because while you're doing it, you're much more likely to be talking to the patient, 
listening to the patient and learning from the patient. And that's always good that when we spend time with our patients, we benefit and the patient benefits. Yeah. And I'll add to that, I guess, that the, the teaching aspect of this is huge, right? Residents, medical students, mm-hmm. attendings for 40 years understand physiology better and anatomy better um, with this at the bedside. And it extends to the patients and the patient's family. If you try to explain to someone LV ejection fraction, 15%, right? What does that mean? Why does that mm-hmm. make me worse than you, Dave? Um, but if you show them a left ventricle on the screen while they're laying in the bed and their wife is standing next to you, right? Mm-hmm. That teaching aspect from a patient understanding and relationship and buy-in for treatment, all of those mm-hmm. aspects is huge as well. So it's, it's way more than a diagnostic test. It's a huge teaching tool. David, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for sharing your thoughts uh, and your expertise on uh, POCUS and acute dyspnea. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This uh, outstanding discussion of the use of POCUS and acute dyspnea reminded me of several uh, factors. The first is that uh, beelines are critically useful to make a diagnosis of pulmonary edema. And in those patients in which pulmonary edema is a possibility, bedside ultrasound can help us exclude pulmonary edema or support pulmonary edema. With pleural effusions, the POCUS really helps with understanding the size of the pleural effusion and whether it's loculated or not. And evidently, it also helps with uh, thoracentesis. Pneumonia, it's not quite as good. It's quite good for peripheral pneumonias, but if you have a central pneumonia, you will miss it on uh, ultrasound. So the lack of finding consolidation in a patient with suspected pneumonia does not exclude pneumonia. You'll need other imaging for that. And pulmonary embolism is not definitive, but gives clues, especially when there's no other obvious cause found on ultrasound, and especially if you see elevated right-sided pressures in a patient who does not have a previous history that's consistent with uh, right-sided increased pressures. We hope you've learned something from this podcast, and thank you for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.